Uh, man, some of you guys may be surprised to see me, and I must, be, I must admit I'm surprised to see you guys as well this morning. Um, as uh, Maori was saying, um, uh, Pastor Jeff, he got caught with uh, COVID for a second time, and he really, really, I just want you to hear my heart and his heart. He really wished to be here with you guys this morning. He loves you guys. He loves this church, and he loves preaching and speaking the word of God. Um, uh, that being said, God isn't surprised this morning. God is sovereign over all, like that song that we just sang. And uh, so I'm blessed to be able to preach again. Um, uh, we'll be reading out of the book of Malachi. So if you would uh, turn there in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible with you, we have a Bible in front of you, uh, in the chair, on uh, the back of the chair in front of you. Uh, I actually did some research this time. It's page 801. If you wanted to turn there, I wrote that in uh, big letters. Um, while you're turning there, uh, a couple of things about the book of Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Bible, uh, not the last book of the Bible, it's the last book of the Old Testament. Um, and it is the, the last book before the New Testament when the arrival of Jesus. And it is also the last book in our Minor Prophets series, um, where we've seen God speak prophetically through his prophets to his people of Israel over the course of hundreds of years, and we've seen how Jesus has fulfilled each and every single one of the law and uh, prophecies of the prophets. And it's going to be no different today as we read from Malachi. Um, A couple of other things to know uh, to give you a little bit of setting for Malachi. Um, This takes place about 100 years after the temple's been built. So last week, you guys remember, we spoke about uh, in the book of Haggai, we see how God was calling his people to rebuild his temple. I'm going to put this down low because I'm short, and I like to see you guys. Uh, We've seen that God's called him to rebuild his temple uh, and rebuild their worship. So this is about 100 years after the temple has been completed, and they've rebuilt their worship, and unfortunately, it's only taken 100 years for the people to fall off in their worship of God. We're going to see how they began to dishonor God in their worship. They began to have um, broken and sinful worship uh, upon God, and God's going to speak into that and call them uh, to repentance. Um, And in doing so, there's something unique about Malachi. Um, God is actually speaking through Malachi, and it's going to be almost like a conversation that's happening. So God is going to be having a conversation. He's going to be speaking on behalf of both sides. He's going to speak on God's point of view. He's going to be calling them, saying, you are doing this or this is true. And then we'll see the people's response, which will reveal the hearts of those people. And then God will have the final word and have the final response in our, uh, in our reading today. Um, so with that, uh, let's pray for the message and we'll get into our teaching today. Lord God, you are good, and we are so thankful for your word that we can come and be enriched by, and we're just reminded, Lord, that you are our supply, and it is your spirit in us that allows us to speak your truth and to live your truth and to worship you truly and fully, Lord, Um, and so it is with that, Lord, that I just pray that as we read your message, would your spirit intercede for us, would your spirit speak Would you awaken in our hearts and awaken in our ears so that we would receive your message, Lord, and may I fade into the background, Lord, and and would you and your word speak. Whether it is I or Jeff or anybody up here, your word is still your word. And so it is by that authority, Lord, that we stop, we hear, and we listen. We love you, we pray, would you speak through this message, would you speak to our hearts, 
We love you. We praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. All right, Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle of the Lord, uh, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved, uh, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may rebuild, but I will, tell down, I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So God speaks right off the back and he gives an amazing, beautiful statement. He says to Israel, I have loved you. And that is actually a statement that a lot of us, when we hear that, that should build up encouragement. That should build up in us just this overwhelming love of thankfulness and gratefulness. But we see in the hearts of Israel a glimpse into their circumstances. See, God says, I have loved you, Israel. But but Israel's response is, how have you loved us? That is the response. You say you love us, God, how? Because how? we're not seeing it. How have you loved us? And God starts, and graciously, he answers. He says, is Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and his heritage. Just a little context. This is where those nations have come from. Come from Jacob and Esau. And basically what God is saying is, I have chosen Jacob and I have chosen you as my people. That's how I've loved you. I've chosen you. And you are known to be mine. And I've been through you throughout this whole entire time and and season, through the generations. And he also declares how he's loved them by just his deliverance and the way that he's treated God's enemies and Israel's enemies through Edom. So our first thing is, God reminds them that he chose them and he's judged their enemies, but that's a call for us today is remember, and that's the first charge for us today, God loves you. God has loved you. And if we're going to see God continue to call his people. In verse 6, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying the Lord's table may be despised. So God's speaking to the hearts of his people. And God does something really cool and interesting here. So God says, I have loved you. And the the first question is, God, how have you loved us? Well, God answers how he's loved them, but now he flips the question back onto the Israelites. Israelites, how have you loved me? Is not, uh, doesn't a father get honor and a servant his master? If I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? You see, he charges them with recognizing that they're dishonoring God and they've forgotten that fear and reverence and respect 
of God. Because God's not just our friend and our father, but he is also our Lord. And they're missing this. And he charges them with despising his name by offering polluted food. They've been dishonoring God with their offerings and worship because what they're offering is polluted and sinful. Continue reading in verse 8. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? We see how they're polluting the offerings. They're seeing how they're coming to the temple and what they're offering is animals that are sick or blind or dying. They're defiled. They're blemished. And God gives us a very specific instruction on how they are supposed to give an offering. In Leviticus 1, 1 through 3, it says this, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. You see, we're not just called to worship God But God has actually prescribed the very way that we are supposed to worship him. And the Israels, they're not doing that. God's very clear. He says it must be of the flock. That means it must be yours. It can't be someone else's. It can't be an offering that you've bought that you're going to offer to God. You can't steal it, which we'll see later that they've actually been taking their offerings by violence and giving it to God. It's supposed to be a male, and it's supposed to be unblemished, not sick, not dying, not a scar. It's supposed to be unblemished. Israel here is called to give their best in worship. They're called to give their best in their offering to God, but they aren't giving their best. For being completely honest, they're not even giving their average or their mediocre. They're giving their worst. See, the animals that they're giving to sacrifice that they're supposed to be offering to be pleasing to the Lord, they're choosing the ones to give to God that they can't do anything with. It's sick. It's dying. It's blind. It's not good for food. I can't eat it. I can't give it to my family. I can't even sell this. But I can offer it to the Lord. I can just, I, this will be my offering. Here's a note for the screen. Honoring God with biblical worship. God, through his word, calls us to honor him through biblical worship. Are we worshiping God according to how he's called us to? Or are we worshiping God according to how we want to? This is the heart of Israel. They're worshiping improperly. They're worshiping conveniently. They're not bringing their best They're not bringing what they're called to bring. They're bringing whatever's convenient. They're bringing whatever they want. They're worshiping the way that they want to, not how God's called them to. Last week, we were talking through Haggai, and uh, we were talking about worship. And I wanted to ask you guys, do you remember what we were talking about when we were saying at worship? Do you know what worship is? 
Worship is when we ascribe worth. Perfect. I know, I know you guys didn't know you guys were going to be tri- uh, I, didn't, I know you guys didn't think you guys were going to be asked questions, that there was going to be a quiz from last week. But to be honest, I didn't know I was going to be quizzing you. So we're, it, it's all fair. But that's exactly right. One of the things that we talked about last week is what worship is when we ascribe worth to God. And God is proclaimed, God's worth is proclaimed with the things that we choose to offer Him, by the, uh, by the way we choose to worship Him. And when we sing, and when we prioritize them in our time, when we serve, it's the same with these offerings. Israel is giving God not their best, not their average, but their, their worst. And that's the equivalent of us giving God our trash, our junk. I have to confess, there was a, there was a season back in a, in a previous in an old church where an example where I've done this, and I didn't mean to, I didn't realize what I was doing, but uh, we had a, a couch in our uh, homes, right? And uh, as I'm sure many of you do, we all, I hope we all have couches. If not, please find the deacon team. Uh, maybe we can help you in this troubling time. I'm just kidding. But uh, this couch was old, it was beat up, it was dirty. It was time for a new couch, it, it, we didn't want this in our home anymore. It was time for a new couch. And so that's what we did. We ordered a new couch. We got one coming in. It's delivered. And now comes the question, the problem, what are we going to do with this old thing? Well, I don't want to give it to a friend. I want to give it to family. Nobody wants this. I can't sell it. It's too old. It's too beat up. And on top of that, it costs money to actually get someone to come and dump it. It costs money. So what was my thought? I wonder if the church would like it. I wonder if the church can use this. But that's how the sneaky little ways, and that's a great example of how we're giving God not our best, not even our average, but we're giving Him literally our trash or our junk. When we give God those things, what are we proclaiming His worth to be? Are we worshiping God with fear and reverence and honor and intention? Or are we just checking a box, giving him our leftovers, our trash? Because that's what's kind of happened here in the people with their offering. Verse 8, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious with us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. God's pointing out a little bit of a hypocrisy in the people. It's like you wouldn't even give your governor this. You wouldn't give a judge this. You wouldn't give a king this. You would honor human authorities and your human practices over your honor or worship of me. He's pointing out how they would be so much willing, they would never give a governor or a judge or a king these things that they're giving to God. But how much greater is God? God is King of kings and Lord of lords. His name will be great, he's going to say in just a few, uh, 
just a few verses, they've forgotten that. They're, they would be more willing to give better offerings to a king they don't even like, a king that may be oppressing them, than they are to give to God. If we're honest with ourselves, we struggle in much the same way. How may we honor human authorities and the things of this world over honoring even our God? Remember the things that we offer is more than just the gifts and the tithes, but we also give in our time where we're willing to give of our service. And what are some human authorities that we may honor more so than we honor to the church? Let's just, for me, let's just think of a job. Think of your boss. Do you arrive at work late? No. We'll make sure that we definitely won't leave early. If, we were, if you had a court date and you had to go and be a judge, or if you were called to jury duty, you, you come. You make sure that you don't miss your appointment. But with God, when we do that kind of same kind of offerings with our time, we kind of selfishly take it for ourselves. Verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you may not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting of its name, my name will be great among the nations, and every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. He says, oh, that one of you would have shut the doors. You're all complicit in this, God says. You're all bringing sacrifices that are defiled and that are polluted, and you guys are all dishonoring my name by doing this. He says, oh, if one of you, if one of you would have just thought twice before you brought the the animal. But no, there's some complicitness in here. Maybe even some peer pressure or the, the justification Oh, you know, my, well, he went and he brought in a blemished animal and seemed to be okay. I, I mean, I guess I can too. Or the priests, they're accepting it. It's not on me, but they're allowing it. It must be okay. But they knew still that they were called to more. And God's saying, oh man, if only one of you, just one of you, would have closed the doors to the altar. Then God says, I have no pleasure in you. I have no pleasure in your offering. I have no pleasure in your worship. I have no pleasure in your sacrifices. And I will not accept an offering from your hand. And then he reminds them, his name is great. For from the rising of the sun to the setting of my name, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations. What's really cool here is God's actually giving an, an image of the future because up to this point, Israel is the only place that worships God. His covenant was with the Israel people, but God's proclaiming that day, 
a great, amazing day where his name is going to be proclaimed with all of its glory and of all of its greatness and offerings are going to be made to him of all places, in all nations. For his name is great. They've forgotten that. Verse 12. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and you bring it as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord. The people say, what a weariness this is. Their worship has become a burden to them. It's no longer something that they do to honor God or to glorify God or to bring them closer to God. It's just something that they do. They're just doing it because that's what they're told to do and that's what they've known to do and so they're just, they're just doing it. Worship for them has just become checking a box. Worship for them has just become something like a to-do list. Oh, it's time to offer something to God. Okay, here, God, here you go. And you can see their attitudes are reflected in their offering. You can see that what they're offering for worship is reflected, that the worth of their God to them is reflected in the worth of what it is that they're bringing. He says, you profane my name with your offerings. To profane is to make common. They're making common of God's name. They're making common of their worship. They're making God's name mediocre. This reminds us of that worship is ascribing worth to God. We're called to give God what's his and what's due his name. For his name is great, we should offer gifts that are great. Verse 14. Cursed be the sheet who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. They vow to sacrifice these things to the Lord, and they're not doing it. They're breaking their vows. They're breaking their vows and their promises with God. And there's a curse upon them for it. He curses and calls them a cheat. And we see that echoed even in Ecclesiastes 5 through 4. It says, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should not pay what you vow. Those vows that we make upon God, in Ecclesiastes, God's telling us that it's better to not make vows at all than to vow something to God and to take it away. And I know that I'm guilty of this because sometimes I make promises that I can't keep. Oh, Lord, if you would just do this one thing, I promise, I vow. Anytime you make a promise to God, that's a vow. I promise I'll do this thing. I'll make sure that I get up early every morning and I'll worship you or 
Oh, Lord, if you just get me through this season, I'll be in church every Sunday. And he's be telling us to be careful with the vows that we make. Because if we make a vow to God, we ought to pay it. It's better to not make a vow than to make a vow and break it. There's so much in the, this book of Malachi. Um, and in chapter 2, I encourage you guys to read it, but we're going to skip through um, to the end of chapter 2. But just to give you some cliff notes, God then turns his attention to the spiritual leaders and the priests, and he rebukes them harshly. He reminds them of the covenant that he's made upon them with, uh, with Levi and how they're not living according to that. And we also see that just as they break vows in their worship practices, they're breaking vows with each other in marriages. They're not even remaining faithful in their marriage. And that's all to proclaim how their, how their, their faithfulness in their marriage reflects their faithfulness to their covenant with God. He just nails them, continues to say how they've fallen short and how they're not living a life that they're called to live and their worship is profaning God. And so we're going to skip forward to chapter 2, verse 17. It's where we're going to pick up. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? We get a summarized view of their hearts, of the people's hearts. Just like how, we, uh, how the people have said, we now wearied by the, our worship of you. God says, I am weary of you. I am now weary of you. And why? It's because of the things that they are saying. Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They're, basically, they're saying, God... doesn't matter if, it, if you're good or if you're evil because the evil guys, the guy, ones doing evil are the ones that seem to continue to reap all the blessing. So God must see them as good. Or just summarized here, where is the God of justice? Where is God? We don't see him in our lives. Where is he? And those questions and those statements and those hearts of the people, they weary God. But God, in his graciousness, in his mercy and generousness, he answers them anyway. We read in chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God is proclaiming Jesus in this passage. They're asking, oh, where is the God of justice? And he's saying, he is coming. Jesus is on his way. I am going to send my messenger to prepare the way, and then before you know it, the Lord whom you seek will arrive at the temple. Then he also hits them, if we continue reading, in verse 2, but who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former days, or the former, in the former years. So God says, Jesus is coming. The one who you seek, he is coming. But then he says, who can withstand? Who can endure the day of his coming? He's kind of stating to the people, you're not ready. You're not living according to the way that I've called you to. It's the human condition that we see here. How they're not bringing their best to God in their worship and how they've made it common and they're profaning God's name and how they just continue to fall short in their worship of God. And God says, who can endure the day of the coming? Who can stand when he appears? But then he gives a a great promise of Jesus, what he's coming here to do. In verse 3, when he says, he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and he will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in and as in former years. What God is saying and is reminding these people that you guys can't do it. But I, behold, I'm sending a messenger. I'm saving, sending a savior and he will purify you. See, that's the gospel. The gospel is that we believe in a Jesus, uh, that Jesus, one, that God created a perfect world, but sin came in and broke it. But God sent his one and only son to live a life that we were called to live and die a death that we were called to die for our place. And he purifies us as a result. And he purifies the sons of Levi. In verse 5, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I'll be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swallow falsely, and those who oppress the hired workers in in his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God says, I'm sending Jesus. He's going to purify you. He is going to, for your, he's going to be the atonement for your sins. And then and only then will I draw near to you for judgment. And he says, I will be swift. Oh, where is the God of justice? He is coming. But it's also a, a cause, of, it's a double-edged sword. Because if you're not in Jesus, judgment is coming. It creates a, a fear, it creates an, uh, an opportunity for us to look and to reflect. In Isaiah 45, 22 through 23, it says, Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. There's going to be a day when God comes and everybody will bow and everybody will worship and everybody will confess. This is an opportunity. This is the first time that you're hearing the gospel. This is Hear that. God loves you and God wants you. He sent his son in a relationship for you, to save you. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. 
Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? God reminds them that from the very beginning, the days of their fathers, they've turned away from God and they have not kept the statutes. But even then, God in his mercy calls them to return. In verse 8, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. God states to Israel, you are robbing me. You are robbing me of your tithes and your contributions. You are robbing me of your best. You are robbing me of your fearful and reverent worship of me. And he calls them, bring the full tithe, bring the full offering. And what a tithe is, in that day they were called, and we're still called today, to give our first 10%, recognizing that we're stewards of what God's given to us. Remember last week when God proclaimed, all the silver is mine, all the gold is mine. That means that all that we have is by the graciousness of God and by his hand in the beginning. And God's so gracious and good, he's not asking for all of it back. But what he does ask, he actually gives the majority of it for you. You get to keep 90% of it. But God is calling for your first and best 10%. And remember that calling. Are we worshiping the way we want to worship or are we worshiping the way that God calls us to worship? And God actually invites us to test him in that. Test me. We're not supposed to test God. But God invites me, invites us to test him in this. Give the first, give the full tithe and see what I do. We're called to give the first and the best, but we don't just give our offering in our tithe. But we give him in our first and our best in everything, in all things. In our time, we make them the first priority of our day. In our service, we make time to make sure that we're serving him and we're serving his people above ourselves, our first and best. A little thing that Israel didn't realize that they were doing in that day, when they would offer sacrifices to the Lord, it was for their atonement. It was to make them pure. It was the, for the forgiveness of their sins. They would offer something that was, whole, that was right, completely blemished, uh, unblemished, a perfect sacrifice to kind of atone for their sins. They didn't realize it at the time, but they were actually proclaiming Jesus to come because Jesus was that offering that God gave for us. Jesus was God's first and only begotten son, he was God's first, and God gave us his best because he was unblemished. He was the perfect lamb and the perfect sacrifice for our sins. We're called to give our best. 
In uh, 1 Peter, it says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Here's a note for the screen. God's best deserves our best. We're to give our first and best in worship in response to God because he gave us his first and his best to us in Jesus Christ. He's not only worthy of it, he doesn't just call us to do it, but we do it in response because Jesus was God's first and best and we should respond in kind. Verse 16, then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before them of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possessions, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve God. He is calling, we see that the people who feared the Lord, the people who built up that reverence and that respect and that honor of God, they respond. And God says with a beautiful line, I see you. I see those who fear my name. I see those who respect me and have restored that reverence and their worship of me. And behold, their, their names are written in a book of remembrance. Their names are written I, will, I see you, and I, I will not forsake you, and I will spare you as a father spares his child. That is such an amazing reminder for us today. See, God restores worship himself. The people can't do it on their own. And that's what I want you guys to hear today. If, if you take nothing else, I know that it can sound like, oh man, we're not worshiping the way that we're supposed to or the way that we're called to. But this isn't a behavior problem. It sounds like a list of behaviors. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You're not doing A, B, C, D, or E. But at the heart of it, it's not their behaviors that are the problem. It's a heart problem. They've forgotten the fear of the Lord. They don't honor him. They don't see him as holy or worthy. And in their worship, they've made it profane and common instead of great because they don't have that reverence for God. And God is calling them to restore a fear of the Lord, restore to them a reverence in worship. Here's a note for the screen. Restoring a heart of worship. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall return to me, every knee shall bow. That is not correct. But basically, God is restoring in us a heart of worship. God is restoring in us the ability to worship him. Just like how God says he will purify the sons of Levi. He actually uh, proclaims this in Ezekiel 36. 
Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord of God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations, which you came. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give, you a, uh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God says, I will restore in you a heart of worship. I will take that hardened heart, that, uh, that heart of stone, and I will replace it with a heart, a heart that beats for me, a heart of flesh that beats for me. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. I will cause you to be reverent and in your worship of me. Know that it's not on just you, but it's the Spirit of God within you that empowers us, that empowers you to worship God appropriately. In um, John 14, 15, Jesus says it this way. If you can pull that up. In John 14, 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in, in you. What God is saying here is that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's not a, if you love me, you better. If you love me, then make sure that you do. But rather, if you love me, you will. Remembering the love of God and pressing into that, restoring that, that reverence and worship will cause us to naturally follow and obey his commandments. And that includes in offering our best, our first and best to God in worship. Each and every single week, we uh, take some time to just kind of reflect on the message. And what stuck out to you today? What was God putting and placing on your heart? And we invite you, would you find somebody next to you and just share your takeaway? Share each other's burdens and maybe confess to even those areas where you may be not lining up or what really has touched you and touched your spirit today. And it's an opportunity where we can really fellowship with one another, disciple one another, and entrust the Spirit to reveal one another, and iron sharpens iron. And we encourage you guys this time, if it's not enough, would you continue that? May that conversation not end here, but may it be uh, continue even out the halls as we continue. Let's give you guys a couple of minutes, just find somebody and, and share what were your takeaways of today's message. And afterwards, we will come back up and we will take communion together.